Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two pawns. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, I named trading firms who are very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate puzzle. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the chopping block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So uh, first up, we'll do some intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Tarun, the Gigabrain and Grant Poobah at Gauntlet. And today, we've got a special guest, Avery, who is the chief architect of Aptos. And then finally, we've got myself. I'm Asib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. So this is the first time that we are doing the chopping block with a live audience here in Consensus in Austin. How are you guys finding Consensus? You've been having a good time. Austin, I will say uh, the weather here has been significantly better than at East Denver. Uh, what are you guys' impressions so far from Austin? I forgot that there are so many layer ones in the world. You know, like I, I feel like I live in Ethland and like I just like don't, I'm like, whoa, holy shit, where did all these layer ones come from? <laughs> like some that I, I just like didn't realize still had huge communities. Are you, are you, are you firing a shot at our guest here today? <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm talking about like, I'm talking about like Cardano and Tron and stuff. Like I just like had not realized there were so many, you know, like it's like a part of the world that's like excised from my brain. I had like a Cardano lobotomy or something. Yeah, there's something around like inverse correlation with like sponsorship size for like a bear market. Like if you look at like the like the top sponsors, it's like yeah, it's literally like Tron, Hedera, someone else. It's like what? Like yeah, you did actually in the last show. Uh, there was some offhand comment you made about Cardano that I believe set the Cardano army on you. Tarun, do you want to describe you know like from the trenches what was it like going through that experience? As a Cardano veteran. I got to say the Cardano army is quite mid compared to the Link army. The Link <laughs> army, I'm afraid of angering. Cardano army, whatever. Like, they, they're kind of weak, weak sauce nowadays. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, that's bold. So, well, I'm, I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see what the reply to that is. Because <laughs> now, now right. no, you're going to get one. <laughs> oh, they, they love you. They love you. I've noticed. They're big fans. Um, Avery, tell us about the, the Aptos army. By the way, it's pronounced Aptos, but I really want to say Aptos. Why don't you just pronounce it the way that everyone wants to pronounce it? It's a good question. Um, the way we came with the name Aptos, not Aptos, is because the way the technology was built was in the Bay Area back at uh, Meta Facebook days, and we wanted to definitely pay homage to the fact that um, you know that's where that's where the, a lot of the people came from, and that's where a lot of the work came from. The other reason, of course, is because Aptos is uh, a great you know town about an hour south of the Bay Area. Uh, it's wonderful for Beach, beach town, as well as surfing and other fun things. And it actually is, is from an indigenous word, which kind of refers to the people. And we thought that that was the best way to think about who we're building for and why we're doing what we're doing. There's something around uh, layer ones and California beaches. Yeah, yeah. I was about to say, like, Solana is a beach, right? In yeah. SoCal? Yeah. 
There's a lot of names derived from California towns in, in this community for sure. Yeah, I'm just waiting for the Baker's Beach layer one to come along. Um, interesting. Okay, so so Aptos, it's got a hard to pronounce name. Uh, well, not hard to pronounce, but you know, unintuitively to pronounce. Um, but uh, you say you're inspired by the people of Aptos, the town, but I assume that's not where your users are. Uh, we've heard that a lot of your users are in Korea and that's where Aptos is getting a lot of traction. Talk to us about like what's going on in Korea right now? Because you know, there's a lot of talk about U.S. regulation, a lot of talk about Hong Kong, but we don't talk about, on the show very often about Korea. Of course, it's a big market for crypto. Talk to us about that. Yeah, I think you know one thing we talked about off stage a little bit was you know Korea has been a market that's been very excited about this technology space. They're excited about you know things like Luna, about um, Clayton blockchain as well. And I think from those early days, people have been you know building and building many different projects, and especially gaming has been one of those areas that's picked up a lot of steam inside of Korea, um, where we partner with a bunch of different Korean companies, including, you know, NPixel, which is a AAA gaming studio to build on top of Aptos, but many others that have not been announced yet. We had our hackathon recently, um, uh, earlier this year, uh, where I think more than 450 developers came through and built some incredible projects. Uh, and so what we've seen, you know, from that exper experience is just that the, the area is just one of the few places where there's kind of first world builders with top rate developers. Uh, that are that are moving the industry forward, whereas you know places like the U.S. are actually not going as quickly, um, and that's really exciting to us. Nice. So one of the things that um, Aptos is known for is it's a the story about building a more performant blockchain, and we've heard that story before. Um, obviously, Solana of the, in the last cycle was the predominant purveyor of the story. Is that we're building a new blockchain from the ground up, totally different stack, totally different architecture, and we're going to make it really fast and really performant. Um, so tell us how you guys. Oh, by the way, by the way, I should I should caveat. I forgot to mention this that Dragonfly is an investor into Aptos. Um, how do you guys think about performance in a world that's full of layer ones talking about how performant they are? That's a great question. I think this debate is something we really want to talk more about. I mean, when people talk about transactions per second, let's start off with what a transaction is. The way we define tra transaction is we talk about user transactions, not system transactions. To start with that. System transactions, like, you know, we, we, for instance, in our network, we also have a transaction that goes off periodically so that we can update the clock. That's nothing that we count as a user transaction. Like, that's not something that users are interacting with. Also, some, you know, transactions can be composed of one or more operations. Uh, some, you know, very small transactions might uh, do be very fast and very large transactions are be very slow. So it's, it's not a really good way to think about, like, you know, how much transactions can this system do versus that system do, especially when you take into account a lot of these nuances. Um, so our, our, our plan is to really put out, you know, transparency in the market. How do we create a definition, which is again, from our point of view, a user signed uh, set of actions that occur in the network. And then thinking about where databases have been in the past, where TPC has done a phenomenal job in terms of understanding different kinds of use cases and access patterns specific to workloads that are common to industry. And then evaluating these uh, in a reproducible environments uh, that are going to be um, used to kind of compare what's, what's appropriate for your workloads and for your application specifically. So basically, if I can summarize, uh, benchmarking in crypto kind of sucks. Like there basically is no real benchmarking. It's like- Let's ask the audience. I mean, like, do you guys feel like there's a great way out there to tell how blockchains are compared to each other? No. I mean, the, the status quo today is that uh, a blockchain will basically say, I built a new fast thing. And then they will put out their own stats that says, I have 200,000 transactions per second and Solana only does 20 transactions per second under my blah, blah, blah. And they generally don't publish code. They don't, they don't publish like how they do this. They don't run the, they don't run any benchmarks repeatedly, which is what real benchmarking companies do. Um, 
why do you think why do you guys think that we don't have like a benchmarking company or any benchmarking infrastructure in crypto yet i, I think like theoretically it's actually impossible in the sense that like if i'm say a virtual machine that is something where I execute fully functionally, then a single transaction corresponds to a long execution trace versus say something where it's procedural, where like I actually have, you have child transactions that are generated. And so it, it, I get the same input, the input output mapping is the same, but one of them, you know, creates a bunch of extra transactions that get written. And that trade-off uh, will kind of inevitably always exist. Um, for instance, in GPUs, um, NVIDIA and AMD would always like make kind of weird benchmarks to compare their throughput. They would never just be like, we do this many flops on BLAST, which is like the basic linear algebra system, like the, the main sort of library for testing this type of stuff. They would instead say something like, oh, well, our our warp uh, bandwidth is really good, or our, we read per particular parts of RAM really fast. And I think there's actually this inevitability in something technically complex that you have like this Goodhart's law type of thing where people start inventing metrics to optimize because their thing is optimized for it. And so then you just, you, you kind of can't, it's purposely like adversarial in that sense. But that's why you need independent benchmarking, right? Like if you, if you have the benchmarks invented by the company that's offering the product, they're going to find some obscure, tiny little thing. Who, that they're who, who's going to do that? I, th that's the question I'm asking. <laughs> I don't know. We're, we're going to do it. So well, well, but you're not independent. Yeah, you're not independent. <laughs> but I think what we can do is at least start to put out what repeatable benchmarks look like, what workloads look like, and then we we can get input from the community and get other L1s and other application designers to to give us feedback. Like so, it might be curious to know like what how fast do you mint a million NFTs? If these NFTs are of certain types of complexity, or how fast can I you know transfer um, you know value from one customer to another, uh, and how much parallelism can I get out of that and extract from it? So even if the environments are very different and you can still evaluate on a per workload basis. You know what is your your throughput of that workload, and it may not be defined in transactions per second. Maybe it's in operations per second, whatever. But those kind of apples to apples application benchmarks are something that we really feel passionate about. Yeah, I mean, one thing I would add though is that all of these different blockchains have different memory models. So, like for instance, Uniswap works great on global state access virtual machines like Eat, uh, but it's very hard in kind of software transactional memory things like Move. Or like it, it has a huge, you know, huge worst case behavior. And so you somehow have to make sure that you're benchmarking workloads under worst case behaviors, average case behaviors, and stuff in the middle. And that whole suite is where I think people's marketing comes in. It's like some people have really high deviation between their worst case benchmarks and average case benchmarks. And they basically report the better of the two of them. And it's just like I, I'm not I'm not so sure you can get around this type of stuff so so transparently. I think that's where like TBC has done a pretty decent job, right? Like they've actually come up with a series of different benchmarks or different use cases, and then if there are certain benchmarks people perform well on or poorly on, you can evaluate it for yourself. Uh, and I think that would that'd be wonderful if we had that kind of transparency in this industry. I tend to agree with that. I think look, if somebody does the heavy lifting of making it easy for an unaffiliated organization to step in and say, "Aha, okay." Here is a good framework around independent benchmarking. Let's go in and do it. And then like once and for all, kill the concept of layer ones, like each inventing their own way of like, I'm the fastest because I've you know, here's this super contorted reason why my blockchain can do more X, Y, Z. To be fair though, like I said, in, in the history of computing and hardware, 
it's always that XKCD comic of the meme of like, there are 15 standards. I'm going to make one standard that unifies them all tomorrow. They're now 16 standards. I mean, clear, right now there's zero standards for Benchmark. So I think, I think, I don't think there's, I don't think there's zero. I think there's like a hundred. Like every single person makes their own. Like, even nothing you're doing, right? Like, people don't actually like care about flops anymore. They care about like, you know, workbench scoring and like, you know, workloads that are actually representative people who are using this for. But, but for custom hardware, people don't do that, right? For GPUs, GPUs in particular look more more like blockchains in terms of the be- the way people benchmark them and it's like they've had this kind of like weird game where it's like you invent you you really do have this good hard slot problem where like everyone just makes up a benchmark that's easy to optimize for them yeah but well, like when someone's reviewing a gpu like it depends on the use case obviously maybe for you know something like proof generation or whatever it's a different story or, or, or machine learning but like you know if you're using it for gaming and graphics like it gets reported so, so one of the interesting caveats to this is that in sort of right around the time that people started realizing that oh, you could do fixed precision deep learning so you can use like normal graphics cards and not get a ton of errors. Uh, You know, AMD was actually winning on all all the like gaming benchmarks, all the like how, how, you know, video rendering benchmarks, but they completely missed the fact that for some other applications like CUDA and then sort of like the structure of the NVIDIA chip was just like orders of magnitude better and like that's why amd sort of lost the race in a lot of ways was that they were like optimizing on the wrong benchmark for 10 years and then nvidia just like kicked them in the face well it's very possible that we see that in blockchains that like the blockchain that's best at uniswap which is you know sort of layer one or gen one blockchains is like okay a lot of DeFi, a lot of these kinds of use cases maybe in the next generation it's gaming or it's some other thing that has totally different access patterns and and, and we'll have a different benchmark that replicates that so so there's like a that. full suite let's yeah. have a full suite a of full suite a full, hey there that's a great word a full suite okay so moving away from aptos let's talk about your um your little brother suite so um aptos and suite you guys have had some drama over the years uh i know that you guys are <laughs> you guys are not the best of friends like siblings you know that i feel like it's very normal sibling rivalry um so suite has been under fire yep, sibling step step siblings no, the siblings. I, oh, come on. They're all their like former, they're all like former co-workers. You know, we siblings. definitely talk quite a bit. So they love each other. They love each other deep down. Um, so Sui, uh, they've been under fire lately because they are not doing an airdrop. And that has caught, they're doing like some weird sale thing or I don't know what, what exactly they're doing. Um, they're doing like some uh, some IEO type thing. So that's what I, to best of my knowledge, I think. Yeah, okay, whatever. We, it's we, like pseudo whitelist. That's like the weird part. It's like not anyone can enter the purchase Okay. It's, so that's where I'm confused. That's where I got confused. Sure. Okay. Let's not speculate about that because obviously we, none of us on stage seem to know. But the, the interesting thing is that Sui decided not to do an airdrop. And this is kind of unique now. This is kind of like, I feel like the story is actually not people are mad, like whatever, people are always mad. But the interesting thing is that Sui decided not to do an airdrop. And the current meta is that when you launch a layer one, you always do an airdrop to the people who are playing around in your test net or the people who are validating early or the people who are com- accomplishing certain tasks. Uh, so what do you guys think about this move from SWE of, first of all, why do you think they didn't do an airdrop? Um, and second, like, what do you think it means about the way that we're going to think about airdrops for little, little ones in the future? Arbitrum's airdrop seems like it could have been a liability in the sense of like the po- all the drama we talked about a couple weeks ago. I feel like that could scare people. I could see that. No, but what does that have to do with an airdrop? That's just like token distribution. If you do it through an IO, it's the same thing. But the problem is you have to do some weird orchestration where the foundation gets paid somehow and you also do the airdrop. And the ordering in which you do those, they're sort of like... But if you sell it to retail on... Foundation extractable value. And like, unfortunately, that has to exist somewhere in the the middle, right? And and that in and of itself probably causes infinite legal problems. 
Well, also, I mean, if you do it through an IEO, right, you can KYC out people who might, you know, might be you know, U.S. residents. And so you can sort of create some some liability buffer that way, which is, I think, kind of the intent. But you think about, like, what is the purpose of doing an airdrop, right? One is, like, maybe create some marketing and, you know, create some goodwill for the, for the brand. And then two is, like, you know, distribute the token more broadly versus, like, just having it with the team or the foundation or early investors. Um, I don't know how, like, effective they are, like, doing either of those things. Um, and I think what we've seen is just, okay, it's like this, it's this arms race, right, where... People expect an airdrop and the team has to go do Sybil, you know, uh, pruning to make sure that it's not going to, and then people develop more sophisticated ways to do like Sybil attacks. And then so it's just like, you know, what are we really doing here? Is this actually effective at sort of the, either of the, either of the goals? And so, um, I don't know, and maybe this will be sort of in the same way, you know, doing airdrops or doing liquidity mining became the meta. Maybe this will be a new meta. It'll be a new way to sort of do you know, distribution going forward. It's clearly true that this is probably a reaction to the regulatory uh, situation in the U.S., yeah, recently, uh, the SEC filed a, a, a lawsuit against Bittrex, I think it was, where they said they claimed that Algorand was a security. And um, I, I don't know that Algorand did an airdrop, but I'm sure that they're somehow drawing the line of like, oh, shit, their ones are now more exposed than we thought they were. And so let's like be super careful about having any U.S. people own this thing by doing an IEO and not doing an airdrop. Um, I assume that's where it's coming from because nobody likes getting trashed on Twitter, especially like the day that you're about to go to you know, uh, uh, go to mainnet. Avery, any take on the uh, drama at your siblings? I'll just say that, uh, you know, we, we I think when, when Aptos launched, uh, the foundation wanted to do an airdrop to really, you know, I, I agree there are trade-offs here in terms of doing civil defense and things like that, but rewarding a lot of the community members who, had, who took the time to really help understand what Aptos was, build build projects, uh, help to run lots of nodes. I think I think more than like 15,000 nodes are run on Aptos, making it one of the, one of the largest networks even before it launched. Um, and and just just show that sign of appreciation and, and goodwill towards them, retroactively, of course. Okay, so not going to say anything negative about Sweet. This is your chance. Everybody's ready for you to say something. I think one thing I just want <laughs> to comment on is that you know when you talk about Algorand specifically, there I think one thing's called out in that particular document was the fact they did in an, an ICO, um, and as one of the factors that, that led to that decision. And so, generally, I think that's a that's a risk. Yeah. The only thing I want to say is all of the Gensler Algorand 2018 video memes from the last two weeks were pretty hilarious. The ones of him like praising Algorand for not being secure. Yeah. The moment that Gensler <laughs> that was pretty hilarious. He's gone on the offensive. All of Twitter has basically trudged up everything he has ever said in a lecture and is trying to use it against him. To be honest, there's not that much. There's not that much stuff that's that bad. He's like Algorand is very innovative. You know, whatever. That doesn't mean it's not a security. And then uh, there was something that uh, Brian Armstrong posted where Gensler said 70% of everything in crypto is a commodity, not a security. And Brian Armstrong was like, what? WTF? Like, what is this? Oh, my God. Like, he's, he's uh, 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 equivocating. In reality, I, I, I read that actually, if you, if you read the context, he's talking about by market cap because Bitcoin and ETH are 70% of the, of the market. So actually, he didn't really say what Brian Armstrong thought he was saying. So anyway... Um, People are, people are mad at Gensler. Uh, what's interesting about the Bittrex case where they where they named Algorand as a layer one is that basically, you know, if you look at the record of what the SEC has gone after in terms of enforcement actions, you know, they the, in terms of big L1s, they've gone after EOS, they've gone after Telegram, uh, and then, you know, they haven't actually gone after Algorand, but they, they, they named EOS, Telegram, Rebel. Uh, basically being like the big old ones that they've gone after. And then most everything else they go after is like some random weird DeFi money market thing or some like basically borderline scam 
uh, is in most of the stuff that they end up bringing enforcement actions to, which seems to imply, or at least if you look at the pattern of behavior, L1s that are run by like reputable people seem to be mostly left alone, right? He has not gone after the Algorands, the Solanas, the polka dots, the, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like the kind of shady ones that are not going to play well in court. I think that's like mostly the action, the, the, the strategy that he's taken. So naming Algorand as a security seems like very out of character. I think it very surprised a lot of people, not because Algorand doesn't share a lot of features with other things that he's named as securities, because they did do an ICO and obviously, you know, there's a team and blah, blah, blah. But it is surprising that something that's like a Turing Award winner, MIT professor, that's like not what the SEC goes after. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? Or Avery, what, what was your guys' reflection seeing them go after Algorand? I think we were just very, again, pleased that we decided to do an airdrop and no ICOs. I think that was a big important part for us um, when we thought about the way we distribute tokens to the community. I mean, ICOs are dead at this point anyway, so I, yeah, I don't think that was a real decision. Well, I, I, I mean, argue, like, again, token sales of any science is, is something that's risky. Uh, oh, I see, I see. That's something we did not do. So even like a, like a coin list type sale, you guys would, would okay, that makes sense. Um, cool. Okay. Let's switch gears a little bit. Um, so one of the interesting pieces of news this week was a hack, which is, you know, every week there's obviously some hack that goes on. But the interesting thing about this hack, so there was a, there was a protocol called Merlin Dex, and it was hacked for $2 million. It was some kind of rug pull. Apparently, people are now speculating it's a rug pull, which happens, you know, there's always rug pulls. But people started blaming Certic. So Certic is this uh, auditor, auditing firm, they are kind of, the criticism against Certic, they're, they're a very big auditing firm, they're criticized as being kind of a, like a sweatshop for audits and that they like just spit out lots and lots of audits. Uh, very, very, they're, like, they're very cheap and they do tons of them. And, and there's a, there are a couple websites that have rankings of hacks by auditor and they are number one by an order of magnitude. Are they adjusting for total number of audits though? That's the, that's the question. No, no. This is just like TVL. Okay. Impact. Yeah. 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 So, so I mean, Certic also they do a lot more audits, so you have to adjust for that. But anyway, so Certic, uh, people. So you know, Merlin. Uh, I think their audit was completed the day before the rug pull happened, and so people were like, "Oh my God, Certic, how could you sign off on this audit?" Which is a very interesting thing to 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 point the finger at, right? Because nobody was like, "Merlin, how dare you steal our money?" It was Certic. How dare you certify that this guy's passed your audit? Um, and so because it was, it was a rug pull. So like it was some admin key that just like pulled. Yeah. I think there was the egregiousness of the fly and like had at, at time of deployment, it already had like an infinite approval for the asset set on some like random EOA. So it was like, like anybody reading this could easily see that was going to be a rug pull. It's like, did they, did they just rubber stamp it? Or like, it wasn't some esoteric bug. Maybe they're using GPT-4 to do some of that. Um, interesting. Okay. Well, so what happened was that people got really mad at Certic. And then Certic, very out of character, first time I've ever seen this, Certic announced that they were going to pull together a compensation plan to, to uh, basically pay everybody back who lost money in this $2 million hack. So to be clear, audits don't cost $2 million. Audits cost a lot less, especially from Certic. They cost a lot less than $2 million. So this is a crazy precedent for an auditing firm to offer to pay people back who use a protocol. What do you guys think about this? I mean, we do that, so... Wait, you guys do wait, wait, yeah, no? we, we, oh, no, but we, you, you, but they, pay, they buy insurance. Yeah, yeah, but well, we cover, we cut, like, you know, if there is... But that's an explicit thing, right? Like, that's yeah. not the case with an audit. An audit doesn't give you insurance. Yeah, yeah, I'm, but I'm pointing out that there are people who do actually... Yes, so if you agree to do that, then yeah. you should definitely yeah. pay it out. He's, Certic never agreed to do anything. 
they're just responding to people getting mad. Well, to be fair, this is like the 50th hack from them in the year. Like <laughs> I, at some point the, the PR damage does, does force you into being an insurer. This, this is also in the realm of like being feasible to repay, right? It's like $2 million. It's not $20. Yeah, million, you get, the, million. The, the, think of it as the cost of PR for them. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, stores at breakage, you know, baked in, and this this is this is breakage for an auditor, basically. I think it's fantastic. I mean, as, a, as someone who deals with auditing firms, and it also helps to find help helps pair auditing firms with our ecosystem projects specifically. It is amazing if they could guarantee any kind of payback uh, for for damages done, and it gives them a lot of summer security. Because our goal is really how do you get applications from ideation into production as fast as possible, and audits are such a big part of that. Um, that would just, I think, increase confidence and have to go after one, two, three, four auditors just to get that confidence in there. I mean, I, so I understand like, it's a nice to have, right? Like if your auditor is actually also secretly ensuring your protocol, that's obviously awesome. But the reality is that if that becomes, so first of all, now we, we, everything we know about crypto tells us that once it happens once the next time everyone is going to be yelling at them to do it again, right? The next time something gets hacked by Surge, they'll be like, you paid out this one, why not that one? Now I'm going to sue you because blah, 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 whatever. Um, and so you have this, basically this like a bundling now that um, it's going to be expected that if the hack is small, that the auditor, auditing firm is going to... So, so this is not, yeah, this is not actually the first time this has happened. So there was this, so in the Euler hack, I forget the name of this auditing firm, but it's like, it's a protocol where people stake uh, in order to perform the audit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, anyway, they, they're the ones who audited the Euler hack code, and then basically they paid out partially. Um, and they're actually, I think, fully drained right now, the amount that they put up for insurance. But this, oh, but they, but they, this is they explicitly were insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is explicitly insurance. But my point That's is... What I'm saying. It's, I think it's very different. I think it's very different. Because, look, yeah. if, you're, if you're charging for insurance, then your insurance premiums are going to change. Right, yeah. like because now, say, look, we had to pay out. Turns out, they, yeah, sometimes we have to pay this shit. So they, the insurance premiums go up, and they compensate for that. If now, when you get an audit, they're also basically underwriting the cost of insurance. That means the price of audits goes up, because now I have to look at the risk of like not only okay, I give you this audit, and then you go and like do stuff with it and fix your damn code. It's also like, well, I'm taking on the risk of giving you this audit that your community will get mad at me and demand that I pay you back for a hack. Um, it just like breaks a lot of stuff. Like audits are already really expensive, right? Bundling the stuff. I mean, I don't know, so Avery, um, when you guys pay for audits, right? Just because I think a lot of people in, in, in the audience don't really understand. They know that audits are important. How much do audits actually cost? I mean, they can cost any anywhere between, you know, depends on the complexity of the code. I mean, the way auditors typically charge is, you know, they have a certain, you know, man hours or people hours they put into the project and then they're going to say like, how much code do I remember viewing? Um, you know, what am I looking for specifically? So it, it really depends on the scope of your project. I mean, if you've got a simple 20 line uh, project, probably almost nothing. If you've got, you know, tens of thousands of lines of code and it's very complex, it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars easily or, or more than that. Can you give us ranges for like what you guys have paid and what you've seen per, like companies in the app testing? Uh, definitely out of our, you know, respect to our auditors, we, we will keep those confidential. But I, like I said, anywhere between, you know, five to a hundred thousand dollars could be very common for audit. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, is, is Sherlock the one you were thinking of? Yeah, Sherlock, yeah. that's it. I, I think there's room for, like, in better incentive compatibility, right? Like, auditors are basically one of the few professions or, or goods or services where there's basically no warranty, right? Like, if you hire a plumber and your pipes break the next day, they'll come back and fix it, or there's an implicit warranty or an explicit warranty. There's nothing like that for auditors. But also, you know, um, for them, it could be an interesting new revenue stream. If you're basically reselling somebody else's insurance and you're sort of offloading the risk to, like, a reinsurer, 
that seems very attractive, but you're right that they should be like warehousing that risk to themselves. That's just like uh, way too dangerous. Yeah. Also, like that also means that if somebody's underwriting a protocol, like let's say let's say you pay me thirty thousand dollars for this audit, right? which okay, fine. You pay me thirty thousand dollars. I do thirty thousand dollars worth of work. Um, I now also have to know how big is your protocol going to be, because if you're like a dinky little thing that's never going to get a product market fit, then like okay, sure, I'm fine underwriting that. But if you're going to get like a hundred million dollars in TVL, like shit, I can't pay that back. Yeah. So one one thing I have seen in industry is that um, what auditors might do, and without again under contract, is that they'll, they'll pay for the bug bounty that could have been associated with that particular uh, bug that was found. That seems way more reasonable to me, yeah. right? Because that's like, again, proportional to the fee that you're paying them as well. Exactly. So I, I think like if, look, if, if there's like actually a warranty such that if my if my um, uh, my audit doesn't catch something egregious, then I'll give you the money back that you paid me for the audit. But like $2 million for like a $20,000 audit, obviously, like, I mean, again, this is an extraordinary circumstance. I don't know any of the details, but if this becomes a norm, it is going to make auditing insanely expensive. But it also belies the fact that, like what, what are audits really in crypto? They're kind of overloaded, right? We think of audits as like, okay, well, an audit is a way to check whether you have like fundamental errors in your code, but it's also a like, you know, sort of S&P or like Moody's like stamp of, this is a triple A contract and you can trust this contract. It's like investment grade contract, right? And we kind of rely on auditors to do both. We sort of don't acknowledge openly that that's what audits are for, but that is really what they're for. Like when people say like, oh, it's an audited contract, they generally don't even read the fucking audit. They just say, ah, oh, it's audited by Trail of Bits, right? Like, great. Nobody opens up the, the audit and actually reads through it. They're just like, oh, Trail of Bits, like signed off on okay. this thing. I, I read Some the, people. I read the audit. Yeah, what do you Okay, all right, all right, to be clear, to be clear. job. <laughs> I'm saying the vast majority of users don't read the audits, right? The, all they do is they take that single bit I, of I think. I think after... Um, the last year, I, I definitely think people have started reading a lot more audits. Like professional people who are like you trading used to not read audits, like professional trading firms in 2021, YOLO only. And after a lot of them got rug pulled, they have started deciding to bother reading things or asking, you know, people who are paying attention. I agree with that. Although I think a lot of that is a function of velocity rather than them learning. It's just that there's less, there's less stuff to do these days. So you have more time to read the audit. Um, maybe. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. Um, let's move on to, uh, our favorite topic, which is regulation. So, uh, you all know us as your favorite regulatory show. Uh, so there was a, a lawsuit that was filed from Coinbase against the SEC. So if you guys remember how the saga started, uh, the SEC issued Coinbase a Wells notice, basically saying that, Hey, you're doing some illegal stuff. We're not gonna tell you exactly what, but we think you're in violation of securities laws. Um, Coinbase has very vigorously in the press and to the public, argue that the SEC is being unfair, they're not giving them clear guidance, and they intend to fight to the, to the death. Um, so then Coinbase has sued now the SEC preemptively uh, to basically enjoin the SEC to affirmatively make a rule, which the SEC has never made rules. Like they, they basically, Gensler has argued repeatedly that we don't need any rules, we already have all the rules we need, the laws already cover crypto. Um, he has basically said, like, look, uh, you guys need to... Um, essentially make a rule about crypto or decline to make a rule explicitly. Uh, and either way, from what I've read, not being a lawyer and not knowing what the hell I'm talking about, um, they've basically, they, the, the strategy is that they're going to compel the SEC to say no, because obviously the SEC is not going to make a rule on crypto. They already said they don't want to. They're going to they're compel the SEC to say no. And then when the SEC says no, they're going to use that in court, say, look, the SEC is not making rules. They're being jerks. Uh, and hopefully that will play well in front of a judge. 
So I don't know if that is correct, but that is what I read. Somebody else speculated who knows more about legal than I do. Um, what do you guys think about the tussle right now between Coinbase and the SEC? Elections coming up, right? So I think there's going to be. Half. I think it's just going to get dragged out, like until like right after the election. So are you saying that it's it's politically unpopular for them to fight this fight in public right now? Yeah, it's sort of. It seems like that. that that's just my you know not being in DC. What, what, DC take. Okay, what do you speculate that the election is going to do to all the actions that are against crypto? Well, I I think the thing is like a lot of people are banking on the anti-crypto movement in their campaigns, right? Like between Elizabeth Warren and, and, and others. There are other others? I thought it was really just Elizabeth Warren. I, I mean, I feel like there's a, she, she has convinced people to nod politely when she talks about it, right? Which before they're like, oh, we don't care. Right. So that, that, that's a, a step up, I guess. But, but I guess my point is more like, I feel like Gendler's either going to try to like shove as many homework assignments under the teacher's door right before the election or basically try to like lay low until after depending on the outcome so i i don't know which strategy you take the super aggressive like just keep pummeling as many of these actions as possible um and then be like look i have such a good track record congress give me 2.5 billion dollars or whatever he requested and uh keep going or whether it's like do enough high profile things but then you know like wait till the election and if it if there's more support post-election because right now it feels like it's like 50 50 on crypto stuff as we saw in the the hearing of him uh then kind of like pull out the bazooka if, if the election goes in the right but it does seem like crypto i don't know that like going anti-crypto is a great election strategy so i agree with you on that front is that but the reality is people who don't like crypto, like people who lost money in the last cycle, especially, you know, they already sold all their crypto. They don't own crypto anymore. So like a year from now, they're not really going to care that much about crypto. They care about inflation. They care about, you know, crime or whatever, immigration. Like these are the hot topic things that are, are going to be mainline issues in the election. Um, if you're talking about crypto, the only people who care about crypto are people who own it. And people who own it, they want you to leave it alone. So I think like if you're, if you're appealing in a general election, you know, independents like, you know, what, 10, 15% of independents own crypto. And so you're mostly going to want to like not mess with crypto because you're just going to lose people and nobody's going to vote for you because you're anti-crypto. It's just, it's just such a low, you know, valence issue for most people. I think on the flip side, like, um, uh, you, you know, Coinbase now is, or they have been, and, and they came out with this like NFT support crypto thing this week. They've really been trying to whip up like a grassroots movement around getting people to support crypto and I think trying to sort of copy like the Uber Airbnb playbook from like the early 2010s, which was extremely actually effective in terms of like um, uh, uh, convincing local regulators and the markets that they operated in, you, you know, they get Uber drivers, Uber users to uh, apply political pressure. We haven't really seen that be effective in crypto, right? Like despite the fact that arguably the user base is much, much larger than either of those apps, like there isn't really a grassroots pro, you know, very loud pro crypto movement. And I don't really know why that is. I mean, they're 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 trying, but it doesn't really seem like they're getting uh, a very are, effective outcome. These are people who are the biggest crypto users are people who are perpetually on the internet. I don't think they're exactly like the <laughs> grassroots. I'm going to go like rally at like my local 
City Hall even, type of people. Even though, like, you know, even like a, uh, you know, just say, send letters, call, call your representative, like, yeah, the problem, call your representative. A lot of libertarians. How many, yeah. how many people who own crypto and bought in last year have made a phone call? <laughs> that's a good point. Maybe a telegram call or something like that. Just yeah, thing. Like, that's, like that's what I think. I think that the, the generational guys. gap piece is actually quite important in, in assessing. Do, do you remember when uh, what was it? It was like NOPA and SOPA, like the um, the laws about like uh, they were going to basically gonna cause a lot more internet censorship. And there was this big coordinated blackout by all the internet companies, like Google and Reddit and all the stuff, and they like blacked out the homepage. Um, I was going to say like they should just like turn off all the blockchains one day. As like a protest. Movement. Sorry, sorry, CEO of Ethereum, can you turn off the blockchain? Thank you. Just ask Vitalik, find Satoshi, you know, like we can, I mean, Aptos we can turn off, right? Like. <laughs> so, yeah, Solana as well, Solana as well. No, no, no sorry, I'm, I'm talking shit. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I do agree with you that like it's, as much as it's good to see Coinbase trying to take this grassroots approach and get people energized by, hey, let's protect crypto, let's fight for this. Um, it is hard. Because crypto, like, they are also, like, very individualistic, self I, I think the thing that will work the most is, is A, obviously inflation, but then B, um, the end of the petrodollar hegemony. Like, it really does feel like, I think Chinese yuan transfers recently were, like, higher than USD transfers for, like, a week, which was, like, crazy. In China, for, for in Chinese China. trade. Yeah, yeah, but, but not it, it includes domestic, it include, included exports, would because like, for instance, like France is paying in yuan for natural gas now. They're not paying in dollars anymore. Uh, Brazil, the same thing. So like this, there's kind of this interesting thing going on also where the petrodollar hegemony does seem to be its weakest point ever. Like everyone in the Middle East doesn't seem to give a shit about the dollar anymore. And I, I kind of think the anti-crypto equals anti-dollar movement is the one that will actually win through the next election. You heard it here first. That seems a little like 200 IQ. I don't know if that's going to I don't know if that's going to quite penetrate the mainstream. Um but I like where I like where your mind's at. That's interesting. I think you know we're we're definitely excited for more clarity. I, that's something we we've, we've you know I think the whole industry is looking for. We Aptos really recently joined the uh, blockchain uh, association uh, and so we're we're actually hoping that the some of the legal efforts and clarity Will help us to to again build things the way that you know regulars want to see them being built. Fair enough. So um, looking forward into this this next year. Obviously, it's been um, you guys for for Aptos. You guys have come into Mainnet. You're seeing the light of day. You get to be a grown up L1 now with everyone yelling at you and being mad all the time. Um, what uh, what uh, what what are you looking forward to over the next year? Whether within the Aptos world or just like more broadly within crypto. For, for Aptos, I think, well, I, I would say these are more broad crypto themes, which is, I think we're all waiting to see like how we leverage like Web3 and crypto to be the best utility for customers. And we haven't seen those mainstream applications yet hidden to market, right? When I ask people like, what are you excited about, about crypto? It's like, oh, I liquid stake and I go to OpenSea. I, that's that's great. I mean, those are all wonderful things, but they're 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 not like, you know, the, the way that internet applications have taken off uh, with Netflix and with Amazon and with Google and all those fun things that are out there. And so... You know, we need a way to demonstrate that utility at scale. And so solving those problems of user experience, um, system infrastructure, and then working together and partnering and maybe even building some of those applications that actually can reach scale, uh, kind of from our experience with building a meta, I think is something that's really paramount, not just for us, but really for all of the industry going forward. Actually, speaking of meta, we were talking about this while we were outside. Um, 
So I was just on a panel talking about AI, like the intersection of AI and crypto. And um, I know Meta has been in the been in the news recently for like their metaverse stuff, plus their AI stuff, like get, get behind in a couple of ways. Um, but what do you guys think about So we had a show recently with Ilya from Near talking about the intersection of crypto and AI. I came out of that conversation feeling quite skeptical that there are that many interesting applications in the short term. When I say applications, I mean like investable crypto slash AI networks or tokens or whatever. Um, but you guys disagree with me. Give me your bull case. Give me the bull case for the intersection of crypto and AI, why there's going to be a ton of interesting stuff that happens there. Oh, yeah. I, I think, you know, at first when I looked at, you know, I think we people have been talking about crypto and AI for a long time, by the way. It's not something new. Uh, I think back then I, I did believe a lot of it was more hype than, than real. But more recently, I think, you know, with with the rise of large language models and other things, there, there are many things that are possible. So first of all, building smart contracts, like we just talked about auditing, for example, that is a big process of, of getting from ideation into production. The way that something like ChatGPT can help you to guide you like, hey, ChatGPT, can you write me a, a simple contract for doing exchange, like a simple uh, swap or, or escrow service? Those kind of things will help onboard tons of new developers to our space when you know, we have tens of thousands of developers in Web3, there are millions of developers who, who work across all like software, software stacks around the world. And so I think those kind of tools are going to be amazing in terms of helping to onboard users, even sort to do things like, again, like with Move, you have this kind of cool thing around a Move Prover and formal verification. Help me write the, ver the formal verification specs to ensure that you know, resources are conserved even after these operations are held. Like that, those kind of complicated operations that now improve our audibility of our code uh, and actually run every single time I, I try to launch a new feature on the blockchain is going to help us to move faster in this space. And so those are kind of a couple of examples where AI and, and like large language models can help us to develop more quickly uh, and actually assist in smart contracts platforms and help educate users in how to build in this space more effectively. And then, you know, I have one more time. I know we're running out of time. So I'll just kind of jump in real quickly. The other thing is blockchain has the ability to kind of um, do some kind of decentralized learning, uh, which is really interesting. So federated learning, for example, where you kind of maintain privacy of user data, being able to share the data in a way that can be accessible for um, for for machine learning and, and for large-scale training uh, can be done using the blockchain. And I think that's another interesting, you know, area that that we're particularly excited about, you know, given our background and kind of my background, uh, just to be clear, I've worked in data infrastructure for a long time, worked on things like, you know, Hadoop, MapReduce, Hive, distributed scheduling, uh, all those fun things. And so I see that kind of intersection being very interesting in terms of, you know, to, to process data at, at a very, very large scale in a way that kind of rewards uh, the creators that, of that content as well. Um, I guess I have two main uh, things. Yeah, certainly I think the decentralized training aspect, you know, every cycle of crypto has had someone say that. So 2015 was like Golem, 2018, it was like Definity, all the L1s right now kind of sort of saying that. But there are actually some quite interesting improvements in decentralized training that aren't just strictly, uh, you know, hey, whatever, you post some state proof that like I, I did a single operation correct correctly. There's actually sort of like some mechanisms people have made for fraud proofs where I can be running a GPU training part of a model, you can be running a GPU training part of a model, and the the person who's requesting it can send us particular tests of whether, hey, are you just giving me random numbers? Or are you actually like running the algorithm, putting the data in? And those fraud proofs are actually super, super useful because there's actually been a ton of uh, fraud in terms of like training stuff where people just give you random numbers back instead of actually you know running stuff uh, on your data. And so there's the, that part is is actually gotten way better. And that's all because of ZK people. That's not because of consensus stuff. The other side of the ZK coin is uh, is algorithmic provenance. So 
how do you know that something came from an algorithm or a human or an algorithm that has access to particular data? And so the slight chills, I guess I've written some blog posts about this this week. So it's quite, it's like on my mind, but there's a, there's a natural question of like, can you generate a form of proof where a, a, a language model can prove to you that it was trained on a particular data set? Like, oh, this language model was trained on the corpora of Coindesk consensus transcripts. And this other language model is just the default GPT-4. Can, can, can they interact with each other to generate a proof to you that one knows that it was trained on this other particular type of data and then generate something that looks like a ZKP that's posted publicly? So the idea of having algorithmic provenance, I think, is actually one of the most important things that people are really realizing is important because everyone here has read something where like, oh, well, yeah, that's definitely from ChatGPT. But you've also probably read things where like, that sounds like it's almost human. And being able to actually have a distinct line for that that's verifiable is going to be very important in the next five years. So to be clear, I, I don't disagree with any of your points, but nothing that you said there, like what, what you basically described is advancements in cryptography that have been um, subsidized by a lot of stuff happening in blockchains are going to have broader use cases, especially with the intersection of machine learning. Totally agreed. Um, I don't know that in principle any of that requires you to post that on a blockchain. So the provenance piece, I think, does need to be posted. So publicly being able to verify that a particular model gives a particular output and that it was made by a model, not a human, or it's made by a particular registry uh, is actually going to be quite important. Because especially as you talk about things where people have fine-tuned data sets for, you know, my custom model does X better than yours, being able to prove that you own that is, is going to be very important because that's the IP of the future, right? The IP is that. That's fair. That's fair. No, that's, 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 that's the argument of knowledge. That is a, okay. That is, a, that is a fair argument. That is a fair argument. Um, okay, we're we're running up on time, so unfortunately we have to wrap. I'm sorry for my rant. No, no, no. That was a great. That was a great rant. That's a natural way to end a end a talk like this. Thank you all for listening. See you all next time. Thanks everyone.